Well, good morning, Trinity Church. It's good to see you this morning. Beautiful day outside. I know all of you are wanting to get back outside and enjoy this afternoon, and uh, we're looking forward to that ourselves as a family. But it's always good to be with God's people. No matter how nice it is outside, right? It's always good to be with God's people and spend this time around his word together. If you're visiting with us this morning, I would love to meet you. I'm going to be standing out there by the door on your way out and uh, trying to make sure I get to see everybody before they leave. People, people have been sneaking past me. I get distracted and people sneak past. I'm like, where did that person go? So if you're visiting, please stop by and introduce yourself. I'd love to meet you. And if you're a, if you're a member of Trinity Church and I haven't talked to you in a while, or if I talk to you every day, you can stop by by and see me still. So I'd love to see you before you leave today. And uh, it's a a wonderful opportunity to be together this morning. I'm excited to be here, and I hope you are as well. The last uh, several weeks, many weeks, we've been with Paul in the book of Acts on his missionary journeys, right? Paul went on three missionary journeys, And chapters 13 and 14 talks about his first missionary journey. Chapter 16 through 18 talks about his second missionary journey. And then picking up in 18 through 20 talks about his third missionary journey. And we are with him as he concludes his third missionary journey today. Now, in your bulletin, it says we're going to read Acts chapter 20. I'm not going to read all of Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20 uh, picks up with Paul after the uproar ceases there in Ephesus. Remember last week we looked at an uproar caused by Demetrius. Demetrius was a silversmith uh, for the goddess Artemis and, and provided a lot of work for the tradesmen there in Ephesus. And he was upset. Do you remember why he was upset? I was meeting with the youth this last Wednesday night and asked them, you know, these questions. And they they were really good. They were able to answer. Do you remember why he was upset? He was upset because the gospel caused such a transformation in the town of Ephesus. The gospel caused such a transformation that people were forsaking the worship of Artemis, which was hurting his bottom line. He was losing money. It had a financial impact on Ephesus because people were not worshiping Artemis like they used to. And so he was very upset and we raised up this, this riot, this mob of people. And uh, after that ceases, Paul wants to go uh, to Macedonia. And chapter 20 talks about his trip back through Macedonia down to a, a town named Troas. And there, there, where he's at Troas, a very unusual event happens. A very unusual event. And uh, this, this is something that I thought about reading, but, but I want to focus on the end of chapter 20. Here, Eutychus, in chapter 20, Eutychus, a young man named Eutychus, falls out of a window and dies because Paul is preaching too long. So... <laughs> I decided I decided to skip that part <laughs> because we don't we don't want to we don't want to focus on Paul preaching too long and uh, it's too too easy for you to grab a hold of that and use that apply it right to your life <laughs> anyway sorry that's a little bit of a joke but anyway th- that 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 event is meant to demonstrate very quickly I want to teach you what that event is doing that event is meant to demonstrate that Paul has power, just, just like Peter. Peter raised Dorcas uh, to life earlier in the book of Acts. 
and Jesus was able to raise people to life, so were Elijah and Elisha. So Paul is one in a long line of powerful ministers that are marked by this power to even give life to the dead, okay? This is what this, this little passage about Eutychus is proving and showing. Paul has apostolic authority. He's not, he's not, uh, he, he's not a, an everyday Christian. He has a unique ministry. You and I aren't like Paul. We're not called to be. There will never be another Paul the Apostle. His ministry is unique, and that's what it's showing us. And after that, after that miracle of bringing Eutychus to life, Paul then travels back. He wants to get back to Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. And on his way, he decides to skip Ephesus. He decides not to go. He'd just come from Ephesus. He he's, decides not to go back to Ephesus because he doesn't want to get bogged down there. But before he passes Ephesus, he asks for the elders to be brought to him from Ephesus because he wants to, to share some parting words with them. He knows that he will most likely not see them again. And so he wants to share with them his heart. He wants to give them some challenge. He, he wants to encourage them and admonish them one last time before he goes to Jerusalem. And that is the passage I want to focus on this morning, starting in verse number 17. So if you had joined me in standing for the reading of God's word, I'm going to begin in Acts chapter 20, verse 17, and read all the way down through verse number 38. Acts chapter 20, verse 17, down through verse 38. Acts 20, verse 17. Follow along there as I read, please. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them. So these are his last words to Ephesus. You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. Serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things 
to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands minister to my necessities and to those who are with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So here in Acts 20, we have recorded for us the last conversation between Paul and the elders in the church at Ephesus. Now, undoubtedly, Paul spends a long time there, probably many hours with them, saying a lot of things. But the author Luke, he here in Acts chapter 20, he summarizes for us the essence of this conversation. So Luke takes all that Paul says and he boils it down. He brings it down. He summarizes this. And he gives us the essence of what Paul communicates there to the Ephesian elders. What does Luke want us to know? That's the question you need to ask. What is Luke trying to communicate to us by his summary here of what Paul said? What does he want his readers in the church for all generations to learn, to see here in Paul's last words to the Ephesian elders? Well, at the very least... At the very least, Paul's words here are a direct challenge to all of those who would undertake leadership in the church. So in a real way, and, and, and you will see this as we walk through this passage, this, this account sounds a lot like all of Paul's letters to the churches. This is the longest speech to an audience that is only Christian. In other words, this is not an evangelistic speech. It's not a sermon to the lost. This is a speech. This is a a word to the church. And it's the longest one, if not the only one, in the book of Acts. Paul is talking to Christians here. And he's giving a direct challenge that sounds a lot like the rest of his letters. He's giving a direct challenge to those who would undertake leadership in the church. Now you say, well, that's not me. I'm not, I'm not trying to lead in the church, so uh, I can sit this one out. Right? There's only a couple of, of us here who are trying to lead in the church. Well, hold on for just a second. It's at least a direct challenge to those who would undertake leadership in the church. But on a bit broader scale, and I want to I challenge you this, I believe this word can be applied... And and we're talking about application here. I believe this word can be applied 
to every single leader, Christian leader in this room. Let me be more direct. I want to speak specifically to men today. I want to speak to the men here at Trinity Church today. You say, well, I'm not a leader. I'm a follower. No. I think we have this wrong understanding that some men are leaders and some men are followers. No, God has designed men to lead. You are a leader because of God's design. You are called to lead. And this word here in Acts 20, I think, is a challenge to every one of us as men in our leadership. We see Paul's attitude and his perspective and his sacrifice. This has a word for us, all of us as men, as leaders. But then, you know, so all the ladies, they go, okay, well, that's not me. So the leaders in the church directly, and then all the men who should be leading in their homes and in their spheres of influence. But I think this passage also can be applied to any and all who profess faith in Christ. This is a word, Acts chapter 20 is a word for all of us in the church. We get a glimpse here of Paul's ministry, his commitments, his challenges, what he believes, his desires, his heart for people. We are offered a template here for what ministry looks like. And each one of us, I want you to hear me, please hear me on this. Every single one of us is called to ministry. Again, we, th- we think sometimes that the ministry is more of a formal thing, right? No, ministry is life. For those who profess Christ, all of life is ministry. All of life is ministry for us. And so this gives us a template for how we are to undertake the ministry, the particular ministry that God has given you. As I said earlier, you are not the Apostle Paul, and neither am I. No one will be the Apostle Paul. And God's not asking you to be the Apostle Paul. I think there's a real danger for some people who think they're the Apostle Paul, right? I'm going to be like the Apostle Paul. Well, you can't be. There's only one of those guys. And yet, his, his model, his example is for all of us. Remain for each of us as we undertake the ministry God has given us. So what is the ministry God has given you uniquely? You have, in this chapter today, you have encouragement and exhortation. You have challenge that I want you to hear this morning as you undertake the ministry that God has given you. Here's the, here's the simple idea. And I I narrowed it down here. I want to give you this main idea. If you miss everything else, this is what I want you to go away with. I want each one of us this morning to be challenged in this way. God is calling us to abandon our lives. He's calling us to abandon our lives. Abandon our lives and commit ourselves completely to the good news of God's grace. Abandon your life and commit yourself completely to the good news of God's grace. That's what we see here with Paul. 
First, we see that Paul abandons his life for the sake of Jesus. Notice again verse 18. He says, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink back from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to see, first of all, that Paul's life was an open book to be read by all. This is what ministry is, by the way. Pastoral ministry, we've said often, pastoral pastoral ministry is like a fishbowl, living in a fishbowl. Everybody has opinions. I can tell you this as a pastor. Everybody has opinions about everything I do. They have opinions about where I send my kids to school. They have opinions about what I do with my free time. I, I, I can't, I mean... Honestly, you can't pick up a golf club without somebody saying, well, is that really what a pastor ought to be doing with his time? I noticed, I noticed that pastor went on vacation. I don't know that a pastor ought to be doing a vacation that long, you know. Now I, I tease a little bit. But that's, that's what Paul is saying. He says, you yourselves know what kind of life I lived among you. From the moment I stepped foot in Asia, his life was an open book for all to see and for all to read. And he was above reproach. So, I mean, think about this. He was able to go to the people he ministered to, and he says, you, you know what kind of life I lived in front of you. And it was blameless. Can you do that with your wife, sir? Go to her and say, you know what, you know what kind of life I live among you. You know, you know what kind of life I live here at the house? You know what kind of life I live? That's convicting, isn't it? It's convicting for me. Because, because I can put on a look for everybody else. You know, I, can, I can impress people. But those I live with know who I am. And Paul is saying, you knew who I was. My life was above reproach. You know what kind of life I lived among you. He goes on to verse 19 to say that he served the Lord with all humility. That word serve is, is the word for slave. He was a slave of the Lord. He had given up his life. He had submitted his life, his will, his desires. He had submitted everything to the Lord with all humility His life was not about himself. He had given up his life to the Lord for the Lord's sake, for however the Lord wanted to use him. He was a slave of the Lord and served the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened through the plots of the Jews, which we've seen through his missionary journeys. He suffered greatly at the hands of the Jews. But he had given his life up for the sake of Jesus. And verse 24, I think, holds, verse 24 holds the secret here, holds the key 
key text of this entire section. Look at verse 24. I, I, uh, I think this is a life verse here, ready to happen. Verse 24. He says, But I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself. I do not account my life of any value or as precious to myself. This sounds a lot like what he says in Philippians 3, doesn't it? He says, I count all gain as loss for the sake of Christ, knowing Christ. He says, my, my life isn't of any value to me. My life isn't of any value to myself. Because of this, Paul was singular in his purpose. Paul was singular in his purpose. Again, in verse 24, he says, I don't account my life or of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul had clarity of purpose. He knew what his life was for. He knew what his ministry was, what the Lord Jesus had asked him to do, and all he wanted was to fulfill that purpose. Why? Because he was a slave of the Lord. He had abandoned his life and given it completely, wholeheartedly to the Lord. All he wanted was to fulfill the ministry that Jesus gave him. Isn't this one of our crippling issues? Sir, isn't this one of your crippling issues in life? You've got multiple purposes. You've got multiple aims. You've got all these different objects that you're chasing after. And because you're chasing after all these different things, you're not effective You're paralyzed. You're crippled in life. We're confused about our purpose, aren't we? What are we here to do? We have have divided hearts. We don't know what our aim is. Trying to accomplish multiple and often conflicting aims. This can happen and does happen on an individual level. It can also happen on a church level. Paul says, I know what my aim is. I know what my purpose is. It's to fulfill the ministry that Jesus has given to me. Do you, do you know what the ministry Jesus has given to you is? Do you, do you know what Jesus has asked you to do? If you are a father, if you're a husband, do you know what your ministry is? I talk to a lot of guys who, who tend, to, tend to talk like their wife is in their way of ministry. The Apostle Paul was single. He was able to give all of his, all of his time and all of his attention to the preaching of the gospel. 
And sometimes there are married men who want to act like they're the Apostle Paul again. Do you know if you're married, you're not, the, you, you, you're, you're not able to give all of your time to the quote-unquote ministry. Your wife is not in your way to ministry. Your wife is your way. She is your ministry. Do you, all, do you think about all the great things you want to accomplish and all the things you want to do? Jesus says, look at your wife. That's your ministry. Commit yourself to her. If you have children, as a dad, they are your ministry. They are not, they are not in your way to accomplishing all the things you want to accomplish in life. I'm greatly burdened by this because I see a lot of parents, both men and women, I see parents who act like their children are a bother. Like, I used to have this great life. And I could do all these things and then I had kids and they bogged me down and I can't minister the way I want to minister anymore. That is not true. That is a lie. That is why you're discontent in your life. Because you fail to see what God, by his sovereign goodness, has actually given to you as a ministry. Your children are your ministry. They're not in your way. They are your way. What if, what if we as fathers and husbands gave ourselves to the ministry God had given us, to our children, to our wives as men, committed ourselves there? Paul knew what his purpose was. And I think often we are trying to accomplish way too many purposes. He was singular in his purpose. He goes on in verse 33 and 35. Look at what he says in verse 33 through 35. He says, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands minister to my necessities and to those who are with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. He quotes the Lord Jesus. He says, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Jesus said that. Do you know where Jesus said that in the Bible? He, he, it's not actually quoted in the Bible. Paul is quoting Jesus here, which, which shows us there's a lot that Jesus said and did that's not recorded in the Bible. Paul is quoting a well-known saying of Jesus here. Jesus apparently said, often enough to be remembered, he, he said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. And, and Paul says, this is my life. I have abandoned my life for the sake of Jesus, for the sake of his ministry that he has given me. And I have not used you as his people. I have not used you for my gain. I have not used God's people to gain. This is a, this is a common theme with Paul. Have you noticed that Paul likes to talk about himself a lot? Paul likes to talk about his ministry a lot. He's always talking about the legitimacy of his ministry and how he sacrifices and all this. Why does he do that? Because he knows that people will come along who want to use God's people for their own gain, for their own status, for their own fame, for their own monetary gain. People are always trying to use God for their own sake. Paul knows that. 
And so he says, I didn't live like you that way. I didn't live among you that way. I didn't live like that among you. He says, I didn't want anything from you. I didn't covet your silver or gold or apparel. I didn't, I didn't take from you. In fact, I lived my life to give to you. I, I laid my life down for you. I gave and gave and gave, not wanting to receive anything back from you. He's not seeking to gain, but to give. This, this is what a leader does, by the way. This is how a leader lives. A leader lives to give, not to gain. This is, this is why the church ought not use corporate models of leadership for our examples. Because in the world, you're always trying to climb the ladder. Who can you step on to get where you're trying to go in career, in life, right? How can you use others to advance yourself? Isn't that what's ingrained in people? That's not how the church works. Those who lead in the church and those who lead in their families aren't seeking to get something. They're seeking to give As Jesus said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. So here's the idea that we need to fight. Here's the distorted anti-gospel idea here. Here it is. Here's the wrong idea. My life is for myself. My life is mine to live for myself. I've got to live for me, look out for number one, because no one else will. The goal of my life is to advance it, prolong it with the highest quality of life as possible. As long as I can, live as long as I can, get all that I can, advance as far as I can, find my meaning in my life. My life is for myself. Every day, when we wake up, this is what we think. And this, has what, this is what has got to die every day. So let's take that distorted idea, my life is for myself, and look and, and think just for a second about Scripture and what Scripture says. Here's the transformed gospel reality. 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20 says... Your life is not your own, for you were bought with a price. Your life is not your own, for you were bought with a price. Your life is not yours to live as you would like. Your life is worthless to you. It's no good to you. But while your life is worthless to yourself, it is of inestimable value to God. First Peter 1, 18-19 says this, listen, you were not redeemed, you were not bought from your futile ways with perishable things like silver and gold. He didn't pay silver and gold for you to buy you as his people. No, you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ. 
Our passage here says that the church of God was obtained with his own blood. He gave his own blood to redeem a people for himself. So while your life is worthless to you, Christ gave his blood to purchase you and make you his own. Why would you want to live your life for yourself and not for the one who died for us and was raised for us? This is what 2 Corinthians 5 says. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves. It's right there, right there in print. 2 Corinthians 5.15. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Christ lived and died for his people. You say, well, if I don't live for me, no one else will. That's not true. Christ lived for you and he died for you. And he was raised for you. He was raised to obtain your victory from death and darkness. He's given you the victory over sin. So you, you living for yourself is like trying to revive the Titanic you know the Titanic, that boat that sunk? Like 1912, I think, was the year. It's on the bottom, way under the surface of the water. It's in two pieces, strewn over like three miles. It's not sailing again, right? It's not going to float. When we, when we seek to live for ourselves, it's like us trying to raise up the Titanic again and make, make a go of it. Your life is dead. In sin, you are dead in sin. You can't float. People trying to buy tickets for the Titanic. It's a hopeless cause. It's a lost cause. So abandon that cause. Abandon your life. This is a shift. This is a complete shift of life that all of us need. Abandon your life for Jesus' sake. And then second, second of all, Paul challenges the elders, the pastors here from Ephesus with, with two commands and here's the summary of these commands. Here it is. Be vigilant. So, so first of all, abandon your life for the sake of Jesus. Second of all, be vigilant with your life because you are in great danger. Be vigilant because you are in great danger. Verse 28, he says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Verse 29, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Verse 31, therefore, he says, be alert, be alert, wake up. Remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Paul says, be vigilant. Because you're in great danger. 
I don't know that we realize the danger we are in. Paul wants them to understand that when he leaves, wolves will come in. Wolves will come into the church and wreak havoc, not sparing the flock, he says. But he tells the elders here, and we have a wonderful passage here where we see elders, presbyteros, elders, being told to oversee episcopos, bishop. So we have elders who are meant to act as bishops and to care for the flock, from the word for shepherd. So pastors are elders, bishops, overseers, and shepherds, right? Pastors are shepherds. Overseers, elders, so we're talk, all talking about one office. And he tells the pastors here, he directs them, he challenges them directly to watch over themselves, be vigilant over their lives. 1 Timothy 4.16, he echoes this, he says, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. For by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Paul says that he wants them to, first of all, pay careful attention to themselves. As, as a leader, sometimes you can begin to think that you have arrived or that because you know a lot of things, that you're safe from error. But he says, no, first you need to pay attention to yourselves. Watch yourselves. Guard yourselves. As a, as a leader, did you know you're, you're just a man? Your pastor is just a guy. He's just a person. He has all the same temptations. He all, has all the same corrupt desires. He's just a guy. And you as a church ought, ought to make sure that your pastor and your elders are keeping a watch on their lives. And carefully guarding their hearts. One of the most dangerous places to be is in the seat of a pastor or elder. And you know why? Because people think that they've arrived. And they forget that they're just a guy. A pastor cannot keep himself apart from the ministry of the body of Christ. He's just a member of the church. And the same is true for you in your life. You can't keep yourself by yourself. It's a dangerous place, your heart. Pastors and all of us, right? We must guard ourselves, guard ourselves from sensuality, guard ourselves from laziness, complacency, greed, bitterness. Guard yourselves, he says. And take care of the flock which God has given His own blood. God has given the blood of His precious Son. God has given His most precious, valuable Son for the sake of His church, to buy His church, redeem His church. 
Paul says that here in the church, there will be wolves that arise, even from some of those he's talking to. Think about that for a second. Here he is, and he's talking to these elders as he's about to leave, and he looks at them and he says, watch yourselves, pay careful attention to yourselves, and make sure you care for the flock, because there are wolves that are coming. And this is what we see happen in the epistles, isn't it? Wolves are coming, and they are going to come, and they're not going to spare the flock. They're going to rip them to shreds. And then he says, even some of you, even some of you who are listening to me right now, even some of you from, from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things, to draw away the disciples after them. Here is an idea I want to challenge for all of us. Some of us think that the church is a safe place. We think the church is a safe place. All of the enemies of the gospel are out there somewhere. All all the enemies of the gospel are out there lurking. As long as we can be here, we're safe. So what we need to do is to gather in our little flock, lock the doors, bar the doors, keep everybody unsafe out. That's what we need to do, right? Right? People have this philosophy in a lot of parts of life. What, what, what if we just, we just, we'll just be, we'll just build a commune. Let, let's do that. Let's build a commune and all move in together. Keep everybody out. We'll be safe then. Here's what Paul, Paul, what Paul says here blows that out, blows it up, right? Because he says, actually, from within the church, there will arise. From within, from among yourselves. The greatest enemy of the gospel lies within us and even within the flock. Many in the church seek to gain from using the church for their own purposes. Now there are attacks from the outside. The attacks from outside are real and dangerous, but guess what? You usually can see them coming. They're usually obvious. The attacks from the outside are usually obvious. Ah, it's the attacks from the inside. The attacks on the gospel from within are not so obvious, but subtle, sneaky. But because of that, even more deadly. I think of, and and we all love this book. We all love this series of books. I think of Frodo's journey to Mordor nobody is under any illusion when you're in Mordor you're in trouble right just him and Sam the corruption that's welling up within his own heart as he carries the ring to try to destroy it but do you remember when he was in the fellowship when he was in the fellowship 
before he went to Mordor, when he was in the fellowship, he was in great danger from within. There were people there who had joined together with him to to help him get there who actually wanted the ring for themselves. This is just an object lesson for us. Sometimes the places we think are safest just lull us to sleep. That's why he says, be awake, wake up. The gospel is constantly under attack not just from outside, but from here in the church. We need leaders who are able to see that. Men, do you realize that the gospel is under attack in your own home? As elders, those who we appoint as elders need to understand that the attack on the gospel from within is real. They need to be able to, they need to, be able to recognize wolves. Sometimes people lack that discernment, right? Well, they're a sheep. I mean, they said they're a sheep. Yeah, they have fangs, but hey, they're a sheep. That's what they said. Yeah, I know they're destroying people's lives around them by their false gospel and false teaching, but hey, they said they're a sheep. Got to be loving, right? Well, why is it that the word pastoral gets gets substituted for basically spineless. I just want somebody to be pastoral. Do you know what pastoral really means? It means to be a shepherd. You know what a shepherd is? A shepherd a shepherd is a tireless uh, a, a hard working a very discerning, constantly vigilant, constantly alert, sleepless And he's ready to fend off anybody coming to attack the sheep. You say, well, I don't like to be called a sheep. It's not a a put down. Sheep just wander and they need protection. And the shepherd is there to protect them. Which means he's got to bring out his staff every once in a while and use it. I just want somebody to be pastoral. Isn't it, isn't it insightful that Jesus is called the great shepherd? How friendly was he towards the religious leaders of Israel? Because he cared for his people. This is what an elder, this is what a pastor should be. We need to abandon our lives for the sake of Jesus. Be vigilant. Be vigilant because we are in great danger constantly. And then last of all, last of all, Paul says this. He says, abandon your life, be vigilant. Then he says, go all in. Go all in on the good news of God's grace. You, you You ever, you probably haven't, I've only heard, I've never done this, but have you ever sat at a poker table? You ever sat at a poker table? I know, nobody would ever do that. Listen. (laughs) Do you know what going all in is? Right? You take your chips and you push them all to the middle of the table. I'm going all in. Now, sometimes you can be bluffing, right? 
But you don't go all in unless you have cards. He says, go all in. Push all of your chips to the middle of the table. Put all of it on the good news of God's grace. Notice two times, first in verse 20 and then in verse 27. Look at verse 20. He says, I did not shrink. I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. In other words, I gave you, I did not shrink back from giving you everything that was profitable for you. I taught you publicly. I taught you privately, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verse 27, he uses the same language. Verse 27, he says, well, verse 26, he says, therefore I testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all. In other words, again, I'm innocent. I've done my job. Verse 27, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. I did not shrink back. Paul was under a tremendous amount of pressure. Trials, attackers from without, from within, people who would oppose him. And he said, I didn't shrink back. When I, when I think of shrinking back, you ever, you ever touched a, a stove that was still hot? What does your hand do automatically, right? You touch that stove, oh, that's hot, hot, right? Or muffler on a motorcycle or something, hot. Paul said, I didn't shrink back. He leans in. Imagine putting your hand there and say, no, I'm, I'm not going to shrink back. It's painful. It hurts. But I'm not shrinking back. I believe this message, the good news of God's grace. This is what you need, and I will not shrink back no matter what happens. That, that was his attitude. That's what we're called to, going all in on this gospel. He calls it that which is profitable. He says, I didn't hold back on anything that was profitable for you. As we read earlier, 2 Timothy, God's word is breathed out. It is inspired by God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished to all good works. He says, I declare to you the whole counsel of God, the whole purpose of God, the whole will of God. I, I gave you God's whole counsel. His whole word. Do you remember when we memorized Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 together? That's what Paul is talking about, is the whole counsel of God. Can I read that through for you just again as a reminder? This is what he says. Or Ephesians 1. Listen, listen to Ephesians 1. The whole counsel of God. This is the whole counsel of God, the whole purpose of God. Listen. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. So, so he says right there, before the foundation of the world all the way to the end, he's got it all planned out. This is his purpose. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the 
purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved, in Jesus. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his what? His purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. This is the purpose, the fullness of the purpose and counsel of God, the gospel. So Paul says he's singular in his message. He has one message. Verse 24, he calls it the gospel of the grace of God. Verse 27, he calls it the whole counsel or purpose of God. Verse 21, he calls it repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 25, he calls it the message of the kingdom. Verse 25, he calls it the word of grace. And on that word of grace, look at verse 25. He says, now behold, I know that none of you will see my face again. Verse 32, so he's leaving. He says, none of you who I went about proclaiming the kingdom of God will see my face again. Verse 32, and now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. Look at this. He says it's able to do two things, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So Paul's leaving. Paul's leaving. And they're saying, Paul, what are we going to do without you? You are our father spiritually. What are we going to do after you're gone? And he says, you already have all you need. I've already, because I've been faithful, you already have what you need. I commend you to God. You belong to him first and foremost. I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and able to give you the inheritance among those who are sanctified. In other words, the gospel, the word of grace, is all you need to be built up in the faith. And it's all you need to keep you, to cause you to persevere all the way to the end. The gospel is all you need. And I've already given you all you need. I didn't hold back. Isn't this what you want from your pastors and your elders? Isn't this what we, we don't want a guy to get up here and just talk about his ideas and give you some good advice about life. No, you don't need good advice about life. You need to be transformed. And the only thing that can do that is the gospel. You need 
the only thing that is sufficient to build you up in the faith and to keep you all the way to the end. That's what you need. That's what I need. See, we have this, again, a distorted idea that we need more than the gospel. We need more than the word of grace. I mean, the gospel's good. Don't get me wrong. You know, it tells us how to get to heaven, but there's a big Bible. We need all of this other stuff, right? Well, it's a big world. There's a lot of truth out there. We need, we need to bring all this worldly wisdom. The internet is just full of wisdom for us. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good uh, choking sound over there. That's good. Because I didn't mean that. I'm being facetious, sarcastic. See, we think that we need more than the gospel. The gospel's good advice to get us to heaven, but really to live life, we need a lot more than that. No, no. The Bible, in its entirety, points to and is about the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of his kingdom. That's what the Bible's about. Some of you think that there's a secret to the Christian life that you haven't discovered yet. Well, it seems like all these other people know the secret of the Christian life, and I don't know this. Yeah, I got to read all these books and learn all these things about the secret of the Christian life. No, no. The secret to the Christian life is the gospel. So it's got to be more than that. No, that's it. The good news of God's grace is all you need. The gospel is not insufficient. Your understanding of the gospel is insufficient. And you need to be growing in your understanding of the gospel constantly, daily. The good news of God's grace is sufficient for all we need. It is what the constantly failing sinner needs to hear. Have you, have you failed in sin this week? Have you sinned again? Are you stuck in a pattern of sin? The gospel, the word of grace, is what you need to hear. It is what the constantly failing sinner needs to hear. Where sin abounds, Romans says, Romans 5, where sin abounds... Grace does much more abound. It's what the self-righteous needs to hear. Are you confident in your deeds of righteousness? Are you looking at others thinking, I'm glad I'm not like those people. The word of grace is what you need to hear. Ephesians 2, you are saved by grace, not of works. It's a gift of God. Salvation is not about your boasting. It's a work of God, not anything you've done. You need the word of grace. The word of grace is what the anxious need. Are you fearful? Are you anxious? Luke 12 One of my favorite verses, Luke 12. Fear not, little flock. Why? Why shouldn't we fear? Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give to you the kingdom. 
You know what? You want to know what God's heart towards you is? That's what Luke 12 says. Fear not, little flock. There's no reason to be anxious because your father, his good pleasure, his good heart for you is to give you everything. He's not going to hold anything from you that you need. Because his heart is a heart of grace towards you. God's word of grace is what his enemies need to hear. I'm not going to go off on this, but listen, have you seen people out holding up signs, turn or burn and that kind of stuff? I'm afraid, I'm afraid we, we have even some that would, in our flock, who would associate with such. Listen, that's not what his enemies need to hear. Those who are against God need to hear the word of grace. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The judgment of God is real. Judgment is coming. But this time, for this space, he has offered an opportunity for you to be saved from the wrath of God. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The word of grace is what those who are experiencing trials need to hear. Romans 8 says, Nothing shall separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing. And it's those who are afraid of God's judgment. Are you afraid of God's judgment? The word of grace is what you need to hear. What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He, did not, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And I could go, we could just go on and on. The word of grace is what every single one of us needs to hear every day, constantly. The word of grace. It's what the doubting needs to hear and the angry needs to hear and the unbelieving needs to hear and the proud needs to hear. It is what every creature under heaven needs to hear, the good news of God's grace. It's all we need. It is what will build us up in the faith and it is what will cause us to persevere all the way to the end. So Paul says, abandon your life. Be vigilant. Abandon your life. It's worthless to you anyway. Abandon your life and be vigilant because you are in great danger. And go all in on the good news of God's grace. This, this is what will build you up and bring you home. Father, we thank you for this word today. We thank you for the sufficiency of of the good news. I pray that you would work in our hearts to, to change our opinions, to change our thoughts even about the gospel. The gospel, the good news of your provision. You have put forth Christ as the propitiation, the atonement for our sin, for your wrath against sin. I pray that we would see the gospel as all that we need 
for life, for godliness, for hope, for security, for identity, for meaning, for purpose, to sustain us, to keep us, to give us peace. I pray that you would make us experts in the gospel and that this would make us gentle people, willing and ready to take a stand, protecting those under our care, giving ourselves to those you've given us charge over. Confront us in our pride and in our desire to keep our lives for ourselves. Help us to die daily, this week even, as we look to the gospel. We give all glory and all credit to you, we pray in your name. Amen.